When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. When Diplomacy Fails presents The July Crisis Anniversary Project A day-by-day account of the events that occurred 100 years ago Exploration and Mobilization Today is the 25th of July 2014, and on this day in history 100 years ago, occurred the following events. The swampy heat of St. Petersburg smothered its residents as they gathered on the morning of the 25th of July to witness the annual Summer Review Parade. The idea had been to schedule it before the worst of the heat, but events had postponed it to the hottest period of the day. The reason for this was that Russia's VIPs were all preoccupied, attending as they were a Council of Ministers meeting, this time presided over by the Tsar in his nearby residence. The intention of the meeting had been to impress upon the Tsar the seriousness of the situation, and to get his approval for the decisions reached at the Council of Ministers meeting the previous day, or Russia's response to Austria-Hungary's ultimatum was formulated. Tsar Nicholas II did not disappoint those present. He approved the partial mobilization against Austria alone, a move which showed Russia still at least aimed to exclude Germany from the expected conflict with Austria. Though it was to go on in private, mobilization would not be announced publicly until Austria attacked Serbia, an action which was judged to happen soon, considering the fact that its ultimatum to Belgrade would expire within a few hours, by 6pm today. In addition to the mobilization, Nicholas also approved further war measures. Soldiers were to be sent to their standing quarters, get kitted up and await further instructions. Army cadets were immediately promoted to officers. Martial law was declared in European Russia, as well as Moscow and St. Petersburg. And finally, the council invoked the top secret orders to begin the period preparatory to war. All five issues approved by the Tsar had been highly significant. By sending soldiers to their standing quarters, they could be transported and equipped and prepared more efficiently and quickly. By promoting cadets to officers, the gap between Russian and German non-commissioned officers would be made up, and martial law would obviously prepare the populace in those areas for the ensuing emergency situation and the need for civil obedience. However, it was the final issue that of the period preparatory to war, which was the most notable of all the Russian Council's approved proposals. 
Understanding what the term means is important, since it forms the essential backbone of Russian action over the next few days, and is often investigated by historians to ascertain Russia's true intentions. The period preparatory to war was designed to prepare the country for war during its mobilising state, in which it would be vulnerable. All states had one, but the calling of it suggests the intention was present in Russian minds to do more than mobilise and simply wave the raised troops threateningly in front of Vienna, as had been done before. It suggests a fundamental escalation in the actions of the powers, and a determination on the part of Russia to definitively act against Austria. A secret military commission had presented the report on what the period preparatory to war was to the war minister in November 1912 and it explained it thus. It will be advantageous to complete the concentration without beginning hostilities. Our measures for this must be masked by clever diplomatic negotiations, in order to lull to sleep as much as possible the enemy's fears. Seeking further clarification of the term, it was signed into law on the 2nd of March 1913, with the following official definition. The period preparatory to war means the period of diplomatic complications which precedes the opening of hostilities, in the course of which all government departments must take the necessary measures for the preparation and smooth execution of the army, the navy and the fortresses, as well as for the deployment of the army at the threatened frontier. Sergei Sazanov, the Russian foreign minister, had had a ferociously busy previous day and today looked to be no different. He left the Tsar upon the conclusion of the meeting, and returned to his office with a view to inviting the British and French ambassadors to Russia into his confidence as to what had been discussed and decided upon. When Sazanov explained about the plans for partial mobilizations against Austria, Sir George Buchanan, the British ambassador, explained in a later dispatch to his superior, Sir Edward Grey, the British foreign secretary, that he expressed his earnest hope that Russia would not precipitate a conflict by mobilising before you, Gray, had had time to use your influence in favour of peace. Buchanan noted that Sazanov replied to him by saying that Russia had no aggressive intentions and that she would take no action until it was forced on her. Sazanov then appears to have contradicted himself though by telling Buchanan and Maurice Paleologue, the French ambassador, that Necessary preliminary measures for mobilisation would, however, begin at once. This later contradictory remark by Sazanov was an allusion to the period preparatory to war that the Russian Tsar had just approved. Though Sazanov did not mention that such a period was underway, it nonetheless struck Buchanan as disconcerting. More disconcerting still for Buchanan was Paleologue's determined approval of the Russian stance, as the latter approved Sazanov's moves without the slightest sign of hesitation. When Sazanov again turned his attention towards the issue of British support, Buchanan claimed he could not back Russia now. The best he could do, he explained, was promise to play the role of mediator between Berlin and Vienna. Buchanan reported that Sazanov was incredulous at this reply, and noted, If we took our stand with France and Russia there would be no war. If we failed them now, rivers of blood would flow, and we would in the end be dragged into war. By avoiding the issue, in other words, Sazanov was trying to impress on Buchanan that it would show the central powers that London did not have the interest or stomach for a fight, and that she should not be feared. If London did throw its weight behind the Entente though, then such pressure combined would force the Austro-German planners to relent. 
Buchanan was not content to be placed in this position, though. He told Gray that he said all he could to impress prudence on Sazonov. However, if Russia mobilized, Germany would not be content with mere mobilization or give Russia time to carry out hers, but would probably precipitate a conflict. Buchanan knew that, since neither side appeared willing to give ground, war was looking more and more likely with each passing hour. Buchanan thus concluded in this report to Gray that the situation was perilous, because Russia was now secure in support of France, she will face all the risks of war, and that soon, Britain would have to choose between giving Russia our active support or renouncing our friendship. Paleolog had no such reservations about supporting Russia though, even if war was the outcome. He assured Sazonov that France placed herself firmly at Russia's side. Having received only snippets from his president and prime minister, still returning from their St. Petersburg summit they had had only days before, Paleolog felt justified in assuring Sazonov of this. Indeed, for the two French statesmen cruising up the Baltic, being so out of the loop was putting a serious strain on both of their nerves. For Raymond Poincaré and René Viviani, France's president and prime minister respectively, the trip back from St. Petersburg was awash with uncertainty as to what was occurring beyond the confines of their vessel. Although the wireless of the ship was working, the signal was often weak, so any telegrams that did filter in often did so maddeningly late or in pieces, making discerning what was going on very difficult. At one stage, Poincaré lamented that Russia's advice to Serbia was an abdication of the Tsarist Empire and a sinister day in world history because he had received word that Russia had advised Serbia not to resist an Austrian invasion. The French, Poincaré said, can certainly not be more pan-Slavic than the Russians. Poor Serbia will thus likely be humiliated. Though he would not receive the other telegram that Paleolog had sent, which informed its recipients of the decisions reached in Russia's Council of Ministers meeting, including the notable nugget that Russia would begin its secret mobilization on this day. Poincaré was thus stuck in the dark for the moment as to Russia's intentions, and he had to remain positive that Tsar Nicholas would stay true to the commitments he had made to him during the summit of the previous days, and not back down in the face of German or Austrian pressure. Certainly, it goes without saying that the French president was dying for the journey to end, so that he could finally be brought up to speed. In Belgrade, meanwhile, the expiry date for the ultimatum was fast approaching, and Serb statesmen needed to form a response before 6pm, or else, by default, the Habsburg ambassador to Serbia would leave Belgrade, and diplomatic negotiations would be broken off, leading to an escalation of the tension. Though Leopold von Berchtold, Austrian foreign minister, had expected a rejection of the ultimatum, the signals coming out of Belgrade made him unsure. Britain's ambassador to Serbia noted that, after having attended a morning address given by the Serb Prime Minister Nikola Pesic, that the Serb reply would be drawn up in the most conciliatory terms and will meet Austrian demands in as large a measure as possible. The Brit noted that the ten points of the ultimatum were to be accepted with reservations, but that the demand on Serbia to issue a public apology in its official journal would be met in full. 
Serbia would dismiss, according to the British ambassador's report, those officers whose guilt can be clearly proved. Major Tankasic, whose involvement in the June 28th plot had been revealed, after the investigations had repeatedly revealed his name, was in fact already under arrest in Belgrade, though Vienna remained unaware of his extensive involvement in the Black Hand, or how close they actually were to his friend and true conspiracy leader, Dragutin Dmitrievich, also known as Apis. Serbia committed itself to dissolve its organisations that were devoted to national defence, and arrest those members in higher oppositions within them. Further commitments were made to satisfy Vienna's qualms with the anti-Habsburg propaganda that they perceived to emanate from the Serb press. Pesic would ask for explanations regarding points 5 and 6 of the demands, which had demanded a commission of Austrian officials to impose an investigation on Serbian soil. Pesic said that he would only agree to that which is consistent with international law or to relations of good neighbourliness. By all accounts, if this reply was passed on to the Austrian ambassador Giesel at 6pm today, then Vienna would have little cause for objection. However, that was the old version of the Serb reply. It had been developed and the fine points of its tweaked until the news of Russia's stance for Serbian support came through to Belgrade late in the morning and early afternoon of Saturday the 25th of July. The Serb ambassador's findings and his report that were sent back to Belgrade changed the entire tone and nature of the reply to Austria. The change was notable in the first line of the Serb reply, where an apology had once been, expressing regret that Serbian officials and officers had participated in the above-mentioned propaganda. Now there existed the Serb expression of regret that, according to the communication from Austria-Hungary, certain Serbian officials and functionaries participated. Instead of apologising as per the demands and expressing its regret, Serbia was expressing its regret that it had been accused of such a criminal act. It doesn't take a lawyer to spot the difference, and since this would be the first thing Austrian officials would read, it would set the tone for the rest of the document. Elsewhere within the Serb reply was the acceptance of the demand to dissolve its organisations, but with the additional protest that Serbia possesses no proof, nor does the note of Austria-Hungary furnish them with any, that any societies have committed any criminal act. When it came to clauses 5 and 6, its resistance was apparent in the clearest terms. Serbia agreed to collaborate with Austrian officials in the suppressing of any subversive movements, but it refused to allow Austrian officials to take part in proceedings or conduct their own investigations on Serbian soil against any Serb citizens suspected of involvement in the July 28th events. As regards participation in this inquiry of Austro-Hungarian agents or authorities, Serbia cannot accept such Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? 
Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market an arrangement, as it would be a violation of the Constitution and of the law of criminal procedure, went the official Serbian response. The Serbian Prime Minister had clearly changed his mind, but had he ever planned on accepting, or was it all a scheme to evoke sympathy from Britain and France with the goal of getting them to back Serbia? The final reply Serbia made to Austria would not be given to the other powers for another five days. Only the Austrian ambassador in Belgrade, Giesel von Gieselingen, was shown the document on the day of the 25th of July. All the other foreign dignitaries had, on the other hand, been shown a copy of the original draft that had been changed so dramatically later in the afternoon of the 25th. In other words, by not granting foreign statesmen access to both copies, it would look like Austria rejected the original, more compliant version of the Serb reply than the actual, more resilient one. Did Pesic hope that by doing this, the other powers would think Austria had rejected the submissive earlier reply? Certainly, this is often the picture painted in histories of the event. It is an Austria, bent on war, that rejects out of hand the Serbian reply, despite the latter's submissive and accepting tone. This version of history was perhaps the one that Pesic wanted the other powers to believe since he hoped that it would compel them to sympathise and support Serbia against its enemy. The question is then, did Pesic never intend to comply, and merely pretended to do so, so he could evoke sympathy? Or, on the other hand, was he merely reacting to the news of Russian support, like his colleagues? In any event, Pesic was well aware that whatever his reply, Vienna would not accept it. In acknowledgement of this, Serbian plans for war had already begun. Austrian ambassador Giesel reported to Vienna that The reserves of the National Bank, along with the archives of the foreign ministry, are being moved from Belgrade to the interior. Munitions depots were being evacuated, soldiers were clogging up the railways, as Giesel noted, strong military traffic, while troops returned to their field bases in the country. This activity was noted by Giesel at 1pm, a full five hours before Serbia was due to deliver the reply, but Giesel only found out in the evening of the 25th from his informant in the Serb cabinet that not only had Serbia begun to actually mobilise at 3pm, but that she had intended all along to reject the ultimatum. Serbia, it seemed, now wanted war. When Pesic arrived at the Austrian embassy, Giesel knew what to expect. Pesic, with his broken German, told Giesel that Parts of the demands we have accepted, for the rest we place our hopes on your loyalty and chivalry as an Austrian official. 
A notable lack of ceremony accompanied the entire event. Gisa looked at the document Pesic had just handed him, and either decided because of Pesic's remark or the contents of the reply that it was unacceptable. Just like that, in the space of 10 minutes, Austria had rejected the Serb reply, and as per the plans of the war party, it would now put into action the next phase of its design, to make war against Serbia. Gisa left Belgrade on a train to Vienna less than an hour after this brief meeting, crossing over the Serb border for the last time at 6.40pm. It was, as one historian called it, the speed record for the rupture of diplomatic relations. But because both Austria and Serbia seemed to have ulterior plans, it appeared as though this didn't matter. No effort was made to recall Giesel back by Serbian officials, nor to appeal his rejection. Austria-Hungary had spoken, Austria-Hungary had left the building, Serbia now had to wait to see what Austria-Hungary would do next. Few in Belgrade expected any other outcome than a military response, but thanks to news of support from St. Petersburg, this wasn't upheld with as much fear as before. While Giesel travelled out of Serbia, he telephoned Stefan Tisa, the Hungarian minister-president, and informed him that Serbia had begun mobilising at 3pm that day, after Giesel himself had been informed of this fact by his Serbian government mole. Tisa passed on this information to the Ballplatz by telephone himself at 7.45pm and notified the anxious emperor Franz Josef of the Serb trickery and the need to mobilise now. Berchtold and the war minister were already with the Habsburg emperor, so they impressed upon him the need to act, and the stalwart Austrian monarch approved the order to mobilise Austria-Hungary's military forces at exactly 9.23 that evening. Chief of Staff Konrad von Hotzendorf was informed of the news that mobilisation was now underway and he could note with relative satisfaction that his timetable was being adhered to to an almost exact degree. Detailed strike plans against Serbia could now be debated. Some hesitation seemed to reside in Berchtold, though. In his attempts to apparently ease the concerns of Britain, who in particular he wished to appease, the Habsburg foreign minister had made a series of public statements suggesting that a refusal by Serbia of the ultimatum did not automatically mean war. Berchtold had informed Giesel on Thursday the 23rd of July that expiry of the time limit will be followed only by the breaking off of diplomatic relations, not by immediate commencement of state of war. State of war will only begin with declaration of war or Serbian offensive. The next day Berchtold told the Russian ambassador to Austria that the immediate result of a rejection of the ultimatum would be that our minister and legislation staff would depart. Technically, Berktold was telling the truth. A state of war would only exist if it were declared against Serbia. In other words, as Berktold was trying to emphasise, there was still time. Even if mobilisation was brought against Serbia, without war, mobilisation was still just mobilisation. And yet, mobilisation was not just mobilisation. Armies were such in 1914 that mobilisation was one of the most important stages one could take towards war. Without mobilisation, there could be no force, there could be no war. If one state mobilised, then the target of that mobilisation would feel inclined to mobilise also, lest it be at a disadvantage when its fully mobilised rival attacked it. Mobilisation was a process, 
it took time to organize and orchestrate, and usually formed a portion of a state's overall strategy. This is seen in Germany's famous Schlieffen Plan, where the very plan depended on the time it would take Russia to mobilize, which would give Germany in the meantime a free hand against France. If a country mobilized against another then, it was either to make a point or to attack it. Austria-Hungary, Serbia and Russia had made a number of points since the assassinations of June the 28th, but it seemed at this stage like a step towards war. Each believed, of course, in a different war than what would materialise. Russia did not want to bring Germany in, but could count on France in the event of her participation. Serbia did not wish to have to face all members of the Triple Alliance, but felt that the Entente would guarantee her safety. And finally, Austria-Hungary seemed to remain convinced that the war would be a one-on-one affair. A settling of accounts that had been guaranteed by Germany's blank cheque, and would be safe from escalation thanks to the Anglo-French disinterest and Russian timidity. The plan was to mobilise against Serbia directly on Tuesday the 28th of July. It was not impossible that a climb down, as seen in previous Balkan crises, would happen before that date. In a curious conclusion to the day, Sir Edward Grey, the British Foreign Secretary, that had been occupied totally with the Irish question, spared some time on this day 100 years ago to talk to the relevant ambassadors. With the prospect of an Irish war staring him in the face, the last thing Grey wanted was a European war, so he wished to converse with the German, French and Russian ambassadors and propose plans that would bring about a peaceful solution. It is an often forgotten fact when one considers the later tone of the war and the extent of British participation in it, that British minds were looking with more concern towards their neighbouring island than the events on the continent at this time. News of the ultimatum had reached Grey on Friday morning, when it was presented by the Austrian ambassador, but Grey only read it that afternoon, and though he stated to his ambassadors that he thought it the most formidable document I have ever seen addressed by one state to another that was independent. He then instructed these same ambassadors that it was not our concern, and to behave in their bases accordingly. The change of heart the next day appears to have been the worrying reports, particularly of Russian intentions to mobilise against Austria, which Gray saw as an escalation of the situation from a purely Balkan to a European quarrel. Gray met the French ambassador first, a man named Paul Cambon. Gray proposed a conference presided over by the outside powers, that is, everyone except Austria, Serbia and Russia, to take place in St. Petersburg. Cambon disliked the idea, since it was meant to be a French duty, as Russia's ally, to pacify St. Petersburg, and that would, in any event, be a difficult act to pull off now, without the Russians feeling betrayed. Having already pledged his support to Russia, the French ambassador to Russia, Maurice Paleologue, would have a hard time explaining the French about-face at this stage in the game. Cambon proposed, instead, that Germany mediate for Austria and Serbia together in Vienna. This wasn't necessarily what Gray had wanted or meant by mediation proposal, but he promised to mention it to the German ambassador, who he was due to meet with next. Interestingly, it was this German ambassador to Britain, Prince Karl Max von Lichnowsky, resident in London since 1912, who held more views in common with Grey than Grey's Entente partner. 
Lichnowsky stated that he wished the conflict between Austria and Serbia to remain localised. In other words, that everyone stay out of it and allow Vienna and Belgrade to sort it out amongst themselves. Gray agreed in part with this statement, since British attentions were far from the Balkans, but he felt that Russia would feel obliged to move against Austria, and that, in any case, the terms of the ultimatum had seemed too harsh for St. Petersburg not to feel like its interests in Serbia were in jeopardy. Gray again brought up his mediation proposal, and proposed that France, Germany, Britain and Italy would mediate between the other three interested parties, and that each would restrain the other, as in previous crises. This was not what Germany necessarily wanted, since they had wanted Austria to emerge victorious in a war against Serbia, and use this momentum to increase the power of the Central Powers. But Lichnowsky reacted far more positively to his proposal, Gray recorded, than at Paul Cambon. Later that day, Gray wired off draft proposals of this four-power mediation proposal, encouraged by the sounds coming from Berlin, that perhaps Germany and Britain could work together to defuse the situation. The replies to Gray's drafts were revealing. While Germany's State Secretary, Gottlieb von Jagow, declared himself quite ready to fall in with Gray's suggestion as to the four powers working in favour of moderation in Vienna and St. Petersburg. Russia's ambassador to London rejected Gray's proposal instantly, on the grounds that a four-power mediation in St. Petersburg would give Germany the impression that France and England were detached from Russia. France, meanwhile, would not even reply to Gray's proposals. Gray would later discover with disgust that Paul Cambon, once he returned to Paris, had not informed anyone about the proposal since he had found it so personally offensive. Gray did have reason to be positive though. The noise from Germany seemed to suggest an Anglo-German cooperation, and if London could persuade Paris and St. Petersburg to pull back, then there was no reason Berlin could not do the same to Vienna. Gray seemed reassured enough by this chain of friendliness and conciliatory actors to take a break from exhausting Irish proceedings and holiday at his country estate for a spot of fly fishing. Continental events appeared both troubling and safe to Britain's foreign secretary, and any thoughts he stressed over were more likely to contain the Emerald Isle than yet another Balkan crisis. Saturday the 25th of July thus ended with a sense of eerie calm for Grey. Sunday the 26th of July would destroy this sense, and would awaken Grey from his splendid isolation of continental affairs, as well as bringing him to the understanding that, whether Britain's concern or not, Balkan affairs were on the verge of spiralling out of control. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 